Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. This is The Roy Green Show podcast. How does the immediate past commanding officer of Canada's elite JTF2 National and Terrorism, Anti-Terrorism Military Unit view this week's major global developments? Lieutenant Colonel Steve Day is the former commander of JTF2, now the president and founder of Radical Ventures, a training and risk management consultancy. And uh, he joins us periodically on the program to assess what's going on in the world. Colonel Day, it has been quite a week, quite a week. Roy, absolutely, sir. There's a number of interesting things going on, as you mentioned, with uh, with respect to the U.S. and Sweden and a uh, a few other different events. So um, where would you like to start, sir? Well, I'd like to start with the U.S. airstrikes. There, most, of the, most, of the, most of the countries in the world seem to be appropriately congratulatory toward the Americans for having taken the step they did to punish the Assad regime for the, for the uh, chemical attack on civilians. There are those who disagree. Clearly, Assad himself, the Russians are not on side. No surprise there. The Iranians not on side. No surprise there. But what do you make of the uh, of the response by the Americans, and what's the potential out, uh, fallout from that? Well, I think we need to look at this in terms of you know we're six and six years and change into this uh, Arab Spring uh, uprising from the early 2011. Clearly, the Syrian uh, civil war and the rise of ISIS has all been spawned from that. And quite honestly, I think it's taken us far too long to start reaching out and doing these strategic strike-type operations against the Assad regime in particular. So so I think everybody, can, other than our adversaries, can rally around the fact that if there's a, re- a regime, such as the Assad regime, out using chemical weapons against innocent civilians, then they absolutely should get, get hit by something, um, and something heavy, and then it goes boom, in my opinion. The, uh, the Osama, not the Osama, the Obama administration... Uh, clearly, if we go back to 2011 on the red line, and then subsequently, I, I accused the uh, former president of dithering, and that uh, encouraged people, individuals like Assad. Is that a fair thing to say? Well, I, I don't know what's, if it's a fair thing to say. I think um, from President Obama's perspective or even President Trump's perspective, I think what we're lacking here is what is the clear political end state that we're trying to achieve in the broader Middle East. This is what's known as a wicked problem. I would not think that President Obama nor President Trump really has a clear idea what we want Syria and the broader Middle East to look like. And without having a clear idea what we want it to look like after the fact, once you start applying military power and military energy into that environment, you create clearly effects and you also create unintended consequences. So I can understand why the previous Obama administration maybe didn't want to go down that road, having just got out of Iraq. But now here we are, like I said, five to six years on, and it's time to be doing something to stop the human suffering. Colonel Day, uh, Donald Trump sent many signals with that tomahawk strike. Uh, One to the Chinese premier, who received the news from Trump uh, during dinner with the U.S. president, another to the Democratic People's Republic of Korea, otherwise known as North Korea, and I know the Iranians sat up and began to pay attention. Uh, but but what do you do now? And what are the dangers? You talk about unintended consequences. There are Russian military present in Syria and at air bases. Clearly, the Americans were careful to choose an air base where they thought or knew there were no, no Russians present. But uh, but how complicated does this make the situation now? They've set the precedent of of of, uh, of responding to Assad. 
if he does it again, do they have to respond again? And if they have to respond again, does the danger of engaging the Russians and maybe uh, killing Russian troops in the process become significantly more pronounced? Well, it, it does, and, and I, I do believe if uh, the Assad, Assad regime tries to do this again, they will get hit again. These strategic strikes are very precise. They are delivered to send, like you've said, multiple messages. And the other thing we can't lose sight of here is is with respect to Russia and Russia playing around like they are in the Middle East. Let's not forget Russia is also playing in the Ukraine, and they're also messing around up in the Balkans. So in this big, great, big, global, great game that we call the geopolitical level, you're making moves in certain theaters of operation that allow you to gain advantages in other theaters of operation. So, yes, North Korea had better be paying attention. The Russians are certainly paying attention. Like I said, Iran and China are paying attention as well. So it's, it's an interesting play, but it's, uh, it's, it's very early in this, uh, in this new set, this new administration. So I think uh, President Trump flexing his muscles a little bit against those other powers um, is not necessarily a bad thing, especially when you're flexing against a regime such as the Assad that, like I said earlier, is striking its own people. So it's an easy one to rally around. Colonel Day, we have uh, Canadian troops in the Middle East, in, uh, in Iraq. I don't know if they're in Syria or not, um, but they are our, including JTF too, they are our special forces units or anti-terrorism units. Are they uh, in play in any way now or increasingly so because of the American airstrike, it's difficult for for uh, Mr. Trudeau to be complimenting uh, Mr. Uh, Mr. Trump for his actions and then not be seen to be actively engaged himself, I would, I would, I would say. Well, this goes back to the decision um, to withdraw the, the six-pack of CF-18s that we had flying, because for a while under the former conservative government, the CF-18s were conducting operations over Syria. So we do not currently have a strategic strike operation from a Canadian perspective to enable or support our, our ally in the U.S. in this specific fight. Do we have JTF-2 and Special Operations Task Force and members from across Canadian Special Operations Command in the region? Absolutely. But quite honestly, they're fully engaged um, with, the, the, with the fight in Mosul right now and enabling the Iraqi security forces to uh, finish off that bit of work, which on the ground is very dangerous, very hard, but we've got the right mission set for the Canadian special operators to, to pursue there. So going back to your question, I'm not, I'm not exactly sure what uh, Canada can do. We've, we've pulled out the aircraft that we had in place. Um, when you look at the defense budget of just under a month ago, and we are not adding capability nor capacity to the defense architecture, Canada can kind of sit on the sidelines and, and wave, but as you and I have discussed before, if you are not sharing the burden, Sitting at the table with the big boys, quite frankly, your, your voice is not heard. We're going to take a break, and then, Colonel Day, last Sunday, Benice Thomas was a guest. Her brother was Robert Hall, who was beheaded by Abu Sayyaf, the ISIS-associated organization in the Philippines. And the family has a great deal of frustration over the manner in which Justin Trudeau dealt with or failed to deal with a rescue operation for the two Canadians. And we were told that we had uh, Canadian special uh, operators ready in the Philippines to take action. The Philippine military was ready to participate, already had participated by isolating that Abu Sayyaf camp where the two Canadians were being held. And the Americans were ready to go as well, but the word the families received or the families believe 
they know to be true is that Mr. Trudeau is the one who personally decided that there would not be a military action to try to free the two Canadians. I'd like to talk to you about the policy that we have, that Canadian hostages will not be uh, dealt for as far as ransom is concerned, and what our options are and what our our message should be as far as anybody uh, kidnapping Canadians is concerned. If we don't pay ransom... I understand the argument there that if you don't pay ransom, there's less of an incentive to kidnap Canadians. But at the same time, when somebody is kidnapped, is Canadian, expects the federal government of this country to stand up for them. There has to be something done to dissuade people from taking Canadians in the first place. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. Colonel Day, uh, just before we talk about the the realities of uh, how a country responds, specifically Canada, to your citizens being kidnapped. What? Uh, how significantly important is Vimy, the uh, the 100th anniversary to, of Vimy, to the men and the women of the armed forces today? Well, I think it's a it's a tremendous tribute to the sacrifices of, of Canadians from coast to coast and, and Newfoundlanders as well that fought at Vimy and uh, Beaumont Hamel in uh, in the first world the first world war, the Great War. And I think what's actually interesting, and you, you hit it there when uh, General uh, Arthur Curry took command of the Canadian Corps, what he actually did, some could argue, was like, exactly like we do in the special operations world today. There was intricate planning. Every man knew exactly what the plan was. They rehearsed it down to the, down to the minute. And so when they went up over the parapets, everybody knew what the objectives were. They were able to, to gather that force, and they, they got up over on top of Vimy. So it's, uh, it is a, a truly spectacular uh, display of courage under fire, Canadian tenacity in the face of a, of a very, very strong and good German army. And uh, at the end of the week, we got it done. So uh, I think it's, it's a tremendous tribute to the Canadian forces writ large, and men and women today uh, do, do similar things around the world. Yeah, and we'll talk more about Vimy tomorrow. Now, on the issue of uh, what a government does, and particularly what the federal government of Canada does or doesn't do, when Canadians are kidnapped, when you look at the, uh, the, the, the tragic circumstances of Robert uh, Hall and John Ridsdale, uh, that should have taught us something, and the families are particularly angry, the, the, the Hall family. I spoke with them last weekend, and they're going to be back with us. Uh, three members of the Hall family will be back tomorrow. They're furious at, uh, at Ottawa. They're furious at Justin Trudeau because they truly believe the opportunity was there, clearly arranged for their loved ones to be rescued, and the prime minister decided no. And this is after the families were told, do not try to raise ransom money yourself. What do you make of this? What, what should we well, be doing? Well, first of all, to the Hall and Risdale family, they are clearly an utterly personal family tragedy, and, and my heart goes out to them, um, certainly having sat in some of those rooms and uh, worked through challenges in the past for other Canadians that had been, uh, that had been uh, taken hostage in various parts of the world. The challenge we have as a country is that if we will not, as a nation, invest in our intelligence, security, and defense apparatus, then Canada does not have a unilateral option to be able to go around the world and you know protect Canadians when they're in harm's way. And what I'm saying by what I'm saying there is when a prime minister or the senior members of government have to make a decision on a military operation yet they don't have the capabilities to execute it themselves, you start to get into a very big political game about and I don't I don't want this to come off the wrong way about how you know what decisions you you actually are empowered to make and which ones you actually have to go out and ask a favor to get made on your behalf. So the prime minister, I, I wasn't in his seat. It would be an extremely difficult decision to decide or not decide to launch an operation. But at the end of the day, Canada has some capabilities to do these things. And I think Canadians 
need to say enough is enough. Let's invest in our security, defense, and intelligence apparatus so that we can go around the world and, and help Canadians when they find themselves in harm's way. Increasingly, that could be the reality. So we have to have a better plan than, than no plan. Absolutely. And, and the sad part about this, in my humble opinion, is that Canada has some of the very, very best men and women trained to do exactly this operation. Yet we seem to be lions led by lambs. The political apparatus, the senior governmental apparatus, doesn't seem to understand that sometimes it's worth the risk to launch that operation, provided you understood the risks as best you can and mitigated them up front. In some cases, we just have leaders that are not willing to take that chance. And if you're not willing to take that chance, you're never, ever going to succeed. Now, and, and you're not going to be seen, as we talked about earlier, and you, you pointed out to us a number of months ago and just uh, addressed a few minutes ago, if you're not seen as a, as a significant player and somebody who's willing to get into the arena and get your nose bloodied if you need to, uh, you're not going to be taken seriously by those people on whom you may count going forward. A- absolutely. And this is, this is the, again, the, the, the national, um, I don't want to call it national tragedy, but the, the, the point we find ourselves in Canada is some of the very best practitioners in the intelligence, security, and defense space are Canadians. We just talked about ten, uh, Vimy. When Canadians put, their, put their, their best foot forward, we often deliver excellence, but we have to be given the chance. And in some cases, there's no political will to allow people to get out there and try and do what they've been trained to do, because I am very confident, had the strategic conditions been set, despite the tactical risk, the men and women of Canadian Special Operations Command would have done us very proud. Okay. Uh, Colonel Day, do you have a few minutes longer you could stay with us? I, I do, sir, yes. Okay, I, I'm going to take a break in about a minute. Then I want, I'd like to talk to you about the, the terrorism and, and the, net, the most recent terror attack in Sweden uh, again, with the use of a vehicle, a, a hostage, or at least a, a hijacked vehicle, and a number of people uh, dead. This now seems to be at least one of the uh, preferred methods of the terrorists to strike. Uh, just before we do take the break, though, in about 30 seconds, before I forget the question, what is the most likely, the most concerning potential negative fallout of the uh, Tomahawk attack on uh, on the Syrian airbase? What, what, if something worries you, what is it? What worries me, and, and very short answer, quite honestly, is the Trump administration as, a, as an organization writ large and how they, how they wield that enormous amount of military power they have at their disposal. I, I'm not convinced the administration writ large um, has got the right uh, constraints on it, personally. He's the commander-in-chief, right? He absolutely is, and that's, I guess, my point. Yeah. Uh-huh. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. Let me ask you about the issue of terrorism. We've been, there's, there is, there's growing concern, and I understand why, and you understand why, there's growing concern about the indiscriminate nature of terrorist attacks. And we just saw again in Sweden two days ago, somebody hijacks a, a beer truck, drives it into a store, people are shopping, just going about their daily lives, doing what they normally do, and we have fatalities, and we have injured, and we have a 39-year-old from Uzbekistan who has committed the crime. You and I have talked about terrorism, and you've said that we need to, as Canadians, we need to uh, prepare ourselves for perhaps more of this as the 
As operations are uh, simplistic, almost operations like this, are carried out by individuals who have their own agenda or they tie into an agenda of ISIS or groups like ISIS. But when it happens, and it happens repeatedly, the concern level continues to, to rise among people. And I've heard a lot over the last 48 hours about that concern. When you hear about Sweden, when you heard about Sweden, what what perspective did you uh, did you have of that? How do we how do we how do we as- assess this, assemble it, and absorb what's going on as individuals? Right. So whether we're talking about Sweden or what happened in London within the last month, and again what happened in the Netherlands, and even back here on Parliament Hill about six weeks ago, seven weeks ago, when that woman in Ottawa stole the vehicle and was able to get up on Parliament Hill and then steal another vehicle on Parliament Hill. Right. What what we're seeing is individuals, individual actors with with various objectives. Uh, I would argue various um, mental states. Um, you know, looking to make a statement of some description or another. But what's most worrying, quite honestly, is the use of what's called dual use technology. Something that, in its normal use, is meant to be more peaceful and/or making our lives just better. I.e., a vehicle. Um, in this case, turned into a weapon, and a weapon that can cause massive death and carnage around it, like we've seen with these, these various truck and bus attacks over the last couple of years. So for me, what it, what it tells me is that we've got some, some challenges uh, across our various societies, in the Western world in particular, and we need to come to grips with what we're doing with those in our society that have mental challenges, and how we're trying to give everybody a chance to, to step up and, and not have to resort to these, these heinous crimes. Because most of this stuff, quite honestly, is better described as mass murder and murderers, vice terrorists, who are actually deeply aligned with a cause. So there's always this dialogue between terrorism and, and murderers. What I'm seeing mostly right now are just mass murders done by sick people. Uh, who are not necessarily uh, hooked up with the cause, or who are? No, they, they may claim to be attached to something they've seen on the Internet or on the TV, right. but really terrorism is about attacking, uh, is normally a tactic of the weak against a strong, a stronger opponent. It is normally tied to a, a clear, distinct political objective. And a lot of these people don't really have a political objective. They're not trying to take down necessarily their own governments. They're attacking individuals, individual Canadians, individual Westerners, and that's, that's classic murder. It's, it's cold-blooded murder. So that's, and it's a crime, and it's as clear as that in my mind. Colonel Day, when we hear that uh, an individual who committed a, a terrorist act and took lives indiscriminately, when we hear that that individual had already been the uh, subject of a police investigation, had been... Uh, maybe interrogated by police, had been an int- of interest to the police for a significant period of time, or national intelligence agencies for a considerable period of time. You, you want to know, how is it that you can be so significantly on the radar of anti-terrorist organizations within your borders, and then you still are able to commit um, uh, such a heinous crime? Is it simply because we don't have the personnel to keep everybody under surveillance all of the time? Is, is that what it boils down to? Well, no, this is a, it's a great question, Roy, and this, this is now we're getting to the nub of the issue. Because you're right, those individuals that are on our respective intelligence and law enforcement agencies' radars, we do not have enough resources to track them 24 and 7 every day. But what we should be doing is empowering our law enforcement agencies to do um, 
maybe some preemptive detainment so that if someone is having an issue that we're allowed to maybe get in front of it and not try and reach and go over the burden of proof that we need for a criminal conviction in a court of law. This is, this is the gray space that's being exploited by our adversaries. They know that we live in a rule-based society. They know that the law enforcement and intelligence communities can only do so much before or, or uh, without having that arrest warrant. And they are playing just below that tear line. And we are allowing them because of the, I would argue, some on the left who maybe are a little bit concerned about uh, civil liberties. And I understand that position. I think we just need to have a, an honest uh, adult conversation about how does our collective security um, compare against our collective prosperity and freedoms. And there's got to be a balance between those two. I'm just wondering, uh, your, your company, Radical v- Ventures, that you are uh, the president and founder of, and here you are, former commanding officer of JTF2, National Anti-Terror Military Unit, Specialized Military Unit, and one of the very best in the world. And uh, what is it that, that people ask of you most frequently? What, what are the... Uh, What's what's the training you give? What what do you get involved in as far as providing your clients what they require? Do you have a client base where folks are in businesses and individuals are are more concerned about their personal safety now than before? Or what what, what exactly do you do and 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 for whom? Well, it's a it's a great that's a great question again, Roy. I don't want to want to turn this into a radical uh, advertisement per se, but what I would say is what we strongly believe in is that our, our decades of experience operating within Canada's special operations community and the global special operations and intelligence community and law enforcement community has given us a unique perspective on 21st century um, security, personal safety, and public safety challenges. And we've got a unique way of looking at these different, what we would call wicked problems, these problems that are not easily solved, and then we sit with our clients and talk about what is your concern today? What are your resource constraints? What is the objective you're trying to achieve? And then work with them to, to deliver a tailored solution in the security space, in the training space, whether that be driver, tactical medicine, communications, global recovery, um, those, those type of things. So that our various clients across many different segments have a chance to understand that we are taking some of those things that we learned uh, in the Canadian Special Operations community and making them available to the Canadian public space, private, private, uh, private individuals and private companies. Constantly changing world and a constantly increasingly nervous and uh, agitated world, it appears. Uh, Colonel Day, it's always a privilege to start, talk to you. Thank you so much for what you've done for this country, and thanks for spending the time with us. Thank you, Roy, and all the best to your listeners this weekend, and we'll talk again again, or again, I'm sure. We will. Colonel Steve Day, the former commanding officer of JTF2, president, founder of Radical Ventures, a training and risk management consultancy. Uh, We'll talk with um, James Rosen from Fox News a little later on today, the uh, chief Washington correspondent. I'm curious how James views what's happened in the United States this week. We, on this side of the border, we watch with great interest what the Americans are doing, and we comment on it regularly on this program, particularly since President Trump was inaugurated, and even before that, during the election and the primaries. But uh, how is the American media, where they're all over the place, they've taken sides. They really have taken sides, a lot of them. And uh, so how does James Rosen view what's happened this past week and see what's happening in the United States particularly? They call call a simple um, democratic majority vote on a judge being in the Supreme Court of the United States so they get a, what was it, 50, 
445 the vote in the Senate, something like that. So Judge Gorsuch is elected, confirmed to the Supreme Court of the United States. And what are they upset about, the Democrats? They're upset because their filibuster got uh, shut down by the Republicans so that Gorsuch could get into the Supreme Court. What does a filibuster consist of? It consists quite often of people standing up and reading birthday lists and nursery rhymes and just trying to kill time and cause problems. So we'll talk to James Rosen later on. When we come back, the Denny Kader issue, the inflamed prostate, which caused the Montreal mayor to forget a $25,000 check he received. Beryl Wiseman, editor-in-chief of the Suburban Quebec's largest English-language circulation newspaper joins us in a minute. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. Uh, Danny Coderre, the mayor of Montreal, the former immigration minister for Canada federally. Danny Coderre and his inflamed prostate caused the Montreal mayor to forget a $25,000 check he received from a supporter, and I suggested that he better have his PSI numbers checked. My good friend Beryl Wiseman joins us, editor-in-chief of the Suburban newspaper in Montreal, Quebec's largest English circulation newspaper. Beryl and I worked together at uh, what was uh, Chorus Radio Station AM 940 in Montreal. His program was The Last Angry Man. And and I listened to you you with such uh, consistency because... You're such an interesting guy. So here I am. I'm thinking Happy about life. Denny Kader. You're welcome. I'm thinking about Denny Kader, his inflamed prostate, and a check for 25000 bucks. and I think I've got to talk to Beryl. <laughs> Put it Boy, together for you. us. I tell you. First of all, by the way, the Suburban is now the second biggest hard copy newspaper in Quebec in either language. Wow. Yeah. Excellent. Three Good for editions, you. We've got 250,000 readers. Good for you. You've had a lot to do with that, I'm sure. Hey. You want me to? You want me to be I'm, falsely, uh, falsely modest, or no? I I, I know you too well. <laughs> <laughs> so what? Okay. To, how do you how do you put this together? The prostate, the check, and and Denny Kader. Look, you can disagree with politicians on any number of things, and I agree with some things with Denny, and I disagree with some things with Denny, and that's all legitimate. We got a bigger problem in our media and in our political life, and that's the whole thing about assassination by insinuation. Everybody hops on something that they shouldn't hop on. Now, you may think this is strange for me. I'm not saying that Denny's excuse is the best excuse, but I want people to be clear on something. The more we, the more we center, the more we focus on issues that aren't issues, the more it's pe- the, the boy who cried wolf when there's really an issue. So here's the story of this check. This wasn't cash. Jean Rizzuto is the brother of Senator Pietro, the late Senator Pietro Rizzuto, who was president of the party, a highly well-respected businessman and organizer. It's a, high, a highly respected family. So he gave his friend $25,000. By the way, nowhere does it say that it's a gift to help him with his legal fees. And I'm not commenting on what started the case with, with Denny's comments about Shane Doan's uh, comments about francophones. Denny then wrote a check that said in the memo line, for Shane Doan file, to Faskin Martin, one of the biggest firms. This stuff was not being hidden. It was going to come out in, in Faskin Martin's declarations. I'm not sure what the big issue is here. There's not even a, a, an ethics guideline, because this isn't a gift. This, this may have been a loan. I don't know. But this was not a hidden issue. It was on paper. It was for legal fees. He was he wasn't mayor then. I I obviously you know Denny's 
uh, answer to the question of uh, not remembering. Not the greatest answer. No, and and Beryl, he's the one. He's the one who raised the issue of the of the prostate. If he hadn't said he'd had an inflamed prostate or whatever it was, because a prostate has no sensation, from what I, I understand, agree. right? So you don't. How would you know that you have an inflamed prostate? It was not. The, well, it wasn't not. A, wasn't only not the greatest. It was terrible. No, this was before. I mean, Denny took a week off, uh, way before this issue became an issue. So Denny, you said when he was asked about this check that he didn't remember it. And then he later said, well, here it is. And so he said, well, I must have been on meds for the, for the infection, and I forgot. Not the greatest answer. You know, the, you, you know and I know that there is reason, and I'm not talking about Denny Kadir now, but there's reason for Canadians to sit up and pay attention when a member of parliament receives a check he doesn't recall receiving and then makes an excuse that sounds absolutely crazy. You know what bothers me more? What's that? What bothers me more is uh, politicians that get a pass because, you know, Canadians never like to hear hard truths about anything. So where's the, how come the focus of attention, for example, on all the fundraisers that the Liberals had with the Prime Minister, with Chinese businessmen, how come that went away in 48 hours? Didn't go away in 48 hours on this show. I understand that. But this issue is not the same. These aren't hidden agenda gifts. These aren't hidden agenda contributions. This is a friend giving money, which went almost immediately to a law firm for legal defense. I got you. I got you. But why not just why not just say that? Why come up with an excuse that sounds frankly banal? I it's past banal. It's past it, banal. It, it, it actually raises the questions of well, is he trying to hide something because the excuse is so stupid? What I'm addressing is the fact that the fact, the issue had no illegalities to it. And we like to pick up on a lot of things but a lot of people uh, that uh, that don't have to be picked up on. The issue here is why did Denny, who's a very savvy politician, and he's very savvy with the media, uh, why he gave that answer, I don't know. Answer this, answer, answer this for me in the minute we have left. How did Montrealers take that news? You know what? The first day... Your readers. With, with derision, uh, with chuckles, but uh, it went away. I mean, it went away when it came out that the check was written back to a law firm. And, you know, sometimes you've got to be very open with media and lead them so that you can't be scared or, or oh, you, you can't be, um, you, you can't push your foot around with media and, and run between the raindrops and worry about saying something. Look, uh, I've been involved in public life, uh, whether it's drafting laws or being in front of committees to help draft laws or running for office. I'm looking at running for the mayoralty of Westmont. And you know what I do, uh, Roy, when, when I do that? I get together my, my, my press friends, and I say, look, so on the one side of things, I've won a Martin Luther King Award. I've gotten a parliamentary certificate for Canadian contribution to Canadian democracy. I've got a Queen's Medal. You want to look at what I've done, or you want to look at the fact that, you know, I've been a man about town. I never pay anything on time. I never argue about penalty and interest. So you want to screw around, or you want to get to the heart of the matter? Everybody's got baggage. You have not ch- you have not changed a bit, and thank God for that. I'll talk to you I soon, my friend. I got to run. Thanks, Roy. Thanks, Beryl. Beryl Wiseman, the editor in chief of the Suburban, the Suburban, in Montreal. You're listening to the Roy Green Show weekends from two to five on AM 900 CHML. Kevin O'Leary, the leadership contender for the Conservative Party of Canada. Mr. O'Leary has been at the top or very close to the top 
of uh, the leadership polling since he got into the race, even long before he got into the race. And he's been talking to us for a fair bit, bit of time. He, uh, yesterday at the Empire Club in Toronto, revealed his economic uh, growth platform for Canada if he is elected leader of the Conservative Party of Canada and goes on to challenge Justin Trudeau and then becomes the Prime Minister of Canada. So, uh, Mr. O'Leary, before we get into the specifics of your plan, how confident are you going forward about what's going to happen with the leadership of the CPC? Well, we have an extraordinary situation, unprecedented Canadian political history now. There's never been this late in a race, 14 viable candidates. And some have been critical of it because it's been very challenging to do debates. That's been the biggest problem. Uh, when you have 14 people at podiums, you basically get 10-second sound bites. So that part hasn't worked. But what it, it, it has done is expanded the party membership base dramatically from a list of about 88,000 to probably close to a quarter of a million right now as the various candidates have sold memberships. And that's a good thing. And, and the other thing is most of these candidates are early in their political careers, so this is a chance for them to build brand, build relationships, get ground affiliations with you know, the infrastructure you need. And so should they not be successful on this run, it'll set them up for the next one, whenever that is. And the party itself is learning a lot about the, the, the process. You know, we've obviously, as a party, been uh, doing some things about membership sales and cleaning that whole thing up because it's not just the conservative party that's had uh, issues. It's been up the whole political process for decades. And I think we're all, all the candidates are shining a light of transparency on these, on these uh, you know, schemes, if you want to call them that, and they're being eliminated. So this list, when it's finally published in a few weeks, is going to be the cleanest membership list any party's ever had. I'm looking at your economic growth platform, and that's going to be significantly important to people in this country, both electing a conservative leader and then, of course, electing a prime minister, because our current prime minister seems to feel that running massive multi-billion deficits and increasing the uh, the national debt exponentially is, is the way to go. Your four points, key points, as I understand it, attract and retain talent, reduce regulatory drag, put money into productive infrastructure, unleash Canada's national resource sectors, cut way back on taxes, am I right? And what sets you apart? What specifically sets your program apart from your opponents? Well, most of the conservative platform is a less regulatory, lower tax environment, and that is all good. But I'm not willing to give up the reins of tax decisions or even economic decisions to provinces anymore. For the last 40 years, we've been pushing more and more of the economic decisions down to the provinces. And then when you get a black swan event like a Kathleen Wynne or a Rachel Notley, the whole country falls apart. I'm not willing to do that anymore. I'm going to be providing very strict adult supervision to the likes of a Kathleen Wynne or Rachel Notley or the premiers of Nova Scotia or New Brunswick who are not developing their natural resources and just asking for handouts and equalization payments. Those days are over. We're going to have a very, very strong federal mandate. It's going to be 3% economic growth. Every premier is going to get behind it. Those that don't will have to deal with Ottawa. Now, when it comes to taxes, I would imagine, at least from what I've read, that your plan will call for taxes to be dropped, lowered significantly for all Canadians across the board, and the tax rate will be no higher than that of the United States. What then stops the premiers you just mentioned and others from saying, fine, you know, Prime Minister O'Leary has dropped taxes significantly, so we'll step into the breach and we'll just fill that breach with taxes for the wheel issue as a province? So let's take an exa- a real-life example. We don't know what Trump's going to do. We're going to know in six weeks. We're going to have to be competitive. So what we're going to do is we're going to drop the federal tax rate in Canada to 10%. Let's say the final corporate tax rate 
in the United States is 25 percent because Trump wants 20. A lot of the other people involved in this decision-making want 28. Let's say we land in the middle of 25. So that's what we're competing with, 25 percent. That means provinces can raise their taxes up to 15 percent. So the in aggregate tax rate for businesses is 25. If a Kathleen Wynne, for example, went to 18 percent, I would simply deduct those three points from her transfer or equalization payments. That would You can't do it. You have to stay competitive. That's the strong arm of Ottawa making sure that um, they act in the right economic behavior for the country. Talk to us about reducing regulatory drag. What do you mean specifically what would you do, particularly for the entrepreneur who has a business that is just starting to make it and is being punished by regulations up the yin-yang? Yeah, Justin Trudeau has been masterful at adding layer after layer of, of a tsunami of, of new regulations on pretty well every sector, and it's, that's one of the reasons our economy is grinding to a halt. So we're going to strip all those away. What I'm going to immediately impose is a five-year moratorium. In other words, any regulation can only stay in the books for five years and has to be re-reviewed or just automatically gets eliminated. For every new regulation that's coming onto the books federally, two have to be removed before it can be put in place. So we're going to be anti-regulation. We're going to be unstripping the covenants around a lot of this stuff that's holding back economic growth, particularly for small businesses where the 78% of the new jobs come from. The country's out of sync with the growth mandates. And we need to grow at 3% in Canada. So everybody's going to sign up for a 3% target. I'm not a politician. I'm not making 25 promises in the classic way that politicians do and deliver nothing. I'm going to say everybody's getting on board for 3%. That's my only promise. And by the time my mandate's over, I'll have this country growing at 3%. And people can re-decide. This, this, is, this is very hard to do. It's not easy. But I'm going to need the provinces on board. That's why I want to give them very strong mentorship and adult supervision on this issue. How do you unleash Canada's national resource sector? We have so many listeners in the province of Alberta, and they particularly are hurting and haven't been helped much by this federal government or arguably by their current provincial government. How do you take care of unleashing Canada's national resource sectors? And specifically, other than the, uh, the oil sands, what are we talking about? We actually have $229 billion worth of projects, everything from pipelines to hydro projects to expansions of the Canadian oil sands, and we have not been able to get them done because they've been stymied in courts or they've been stymied by small groups, many of them not Canadians, coming up here and protesting and stopping the process. We're going to take a more... Um, focused approach. And so, you know, if you're a Hollywood star and you want to come and chain yourself to a fence on a pipeline project, and I'm driving a bulldozer, I'll probably run you over. So you better have the keys to unlock yourself. I'm not going to let a small group of people stop what's the benefit of all Canadians. We've done too much of this, and it's really hurt us. That's $229 billion in projects stalled is $8 billion a year worth of economic activity we're not getting. For example, we give $12 billion a year to the Saudis and Venezuelans because we can't move oil from Alberta to yeah. refineries on the East Coast. That's just stupid. We're going to stop doing that. Somebody needs to explain to us how it is that Algerian oil tankers are okay on the St. Lawrence River. Nobody protests that. Nobody complains about that. Quebec is just fine having those tankers arrive at there at, in Montreal and the oil to be transported to the fire, refineries there. That's all fine. Nobody protests. But if you bring up the issue of oil tankers on the other coast, everybody protests. What's in the middle? That, that doesn't make sense. It doesn't. This is, this is why, at the end of the day, you really need a strong leader in Ottawa that has a very focused economic mandate. That's what really matters, because we have let all of these protesters and people from the... The one that gets me the most, that makes me so unhappy, is when, when, when Cana people that aren't even Canadians fly into our country, use their celebrity to protest against a tanker, 
facility or port on the West Coast. What business do they have telling Canadians what to do with their own environment and economy and jobs? This is my point. I appreciate the work they do in movies, and I love to watch them, but they don't know what the hell they're talking about when it comes to developing our infrastructure. Uh, Philip Couillard is the premier of Quebec, as you know. It doesn't matter who the premier of Quebec is. Quebec has its own rules. What do you do if a Quebec premier says, get lost? Well, Quebec's actually done a pretty good job in the last two years in cleaning itself up. If you look at their balanced budget approach, they're actually getting better and better and better. The issue I have with him and the mayor of Montreal is the pipeline. Their claim is that it crosses 600 rivers, and that may be true. But my point is this. I don't know what it's going to cost us as a country to cut a deal with Quebec, but they are also Canadians. I I don't care what the royalty split is between the provinces that the pipeline goes over, as long as every dollar stays in the hand of a Canadian. I think of us as a collective. And so if we give a little bit more to Quebec because they're taking more risk because it goes over more rivers, I'm happy to pay, as long as it stays in the hands of a Canadian. That's the mentor. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. Mr. O'Leary has uh, just announced, um, yesterday actually, announced the uh, economic growth plan, his plan for platform for this country. When you have people like, um, we talked about Philip Quiard Quiard and Kathleen Wynne just a moment ago. You have these two premiers who are hell-bent on... uh, on the cap-and-trade initiative that they have now with the, with the state of California. There, you have a prime minister who's hell-bent on the carbon tax. You have a progressive conservative leader in Ontario, Patrick Brown, who's hell-bent on a carbon tax. Where do you stand, Mr. O'Leary? How, how do you deal with these people? How do, you, how do you deal with their initiatives and their demands for climate protocols like those? There's other ways to do that. You know, I'm a graduate of environmental studies, uh, one of the first cohorts out of environmental studies at University of Waterloo in the late 70s. And we studied this long before people were concerned about the balance between the economy and the environment. You, you don't impose cap and trade because it doesn't work. If you have a very wealthy company with a lot of smokestacks and a large balance sheet, they simply buy carbon credits and continue to pollute versus a small, innovative company that doesn't have any cash, figures out ways to sequester carbon or scrub carbon or find other ways to do things. So that's a very, very bad idea, and already it does, has done nothing. Kathleen Wynne has not been able to prove that she's improved the air quality in Ontario at all, yet she's extracted hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars in businesses, and we've lost hundreds of thousands of jobs. I don't know if she'll survive another political mandate, but I'm not that worried about it. The point is you have to provide the Diefenbaker-like guidance, mentorship, adult supervision that we had in our parliamentary system decades ago. It needs to come back. We've put all this power back down to the provinces with disastrous results. You've got to remember, just a few weeks ago, Justin Trudeau went to Texas with Rachel Notley and gave a PowerPoint presentation on carbon tax to Texans. Imagine nobody gave them any guidance. This is horrific. While she was there, Shell pulled $12.1 billion out of Alberta, and where do they move it? To Texas. And then a week later, ConocoPhillips, $17.64 billion out of Canada. It's gone. So these leaders don't understand the relationship between bad economic policy and the devastation it creates on the Canadian economy. So the key is to get rid of Trudeau first. Then we have to deal with a strong hand in the provinces to help them make the right decisions for their people. Have you costed your program? 
I haven't finished my program yet because I haven't brought forward policy on military procurement or spending, which is another $25 billion file. So I'm the beginning of my policy papers. My costing will be when I put them all out. But obviously, I like lower taxes, more economic growth. That actually increases tax revenues, believe it or not. What do you what do you do for the average Canadian who's struggling with extremely high taxes? Now, if you look at the province of Ontario, and particularly in major cities like Toronto and Hamilton on Ottawa, you have the uh, property tax, or at least at the home of the price of homes has gone through the roof. is a, is a major national issue. How do you address? that particular issue, and how do you deal with it? What do you give to the urban voter who needs help? So those are two issues. The housing price problem in Canada has to do with regulations. The builders can't get zoning to build homes. We need to increase the zoning areas by 30% to take the pressure off the price of homes because we can't build enough for the people that want them. So that's a regulatory issue. The tax issue is we have to wait to see what personal taxes are going to be in the United States and match them, probably somewhere in the 35 to 37% range. Many Canadians, particularly in Ontario, are paying well over 50%. And Atlantic Canada, the same thing, as much as 54%. That's ridiculous. That's more than half their income. I'm going to introduce legislation that actually prohibits in perpetuity taxes to ever go in a combined basis between provincial and federal past 50%. It's, it's un-Canadian to take more than half of someone's income. That means the government's out of control and we've got to really trim it down. And you have no doubt your numbers will work out? Yes. And as a matter of fact, I'm extremely confident that I can deliver on my promise, my only promise, the singular promise, 3% GDP growth. Very confident. Why? Because I'm going to bring in an A-class team, get rid, of the media, get rid of the mediocrity in Ottawa right now. That caucus that Trudeau has, he kept talking about diversity. He never once used the word competency. And now we see the results. Final question for you. What do you want to say to people inclined to uh, turn to Maxime Bernier for the leadership of the CPC? Well, you know, this is a race, and all uh, leadership races are civil wars within a party. But once a leader, whichever man or woman is chosen, everybody will rally around that leader. And I have already made a commitment. Whoever wins, I will throw 100% of my support behind them and do everything I can for the party to make sure that the goal of removing Justin Trudeau from power is what happens. It's very important for me. It's a personal mandate to help that young man find his true calling, but it's not running Canada. Well, uh, photography might be an option. (laughs) Just a thought. You've certainly always had a great deal of positive response from my listeners, and I thank you for coming on the air with us today and explaining your program, and we'll see what happens, what the callers have to say now. Thanks, Mr. O'Leary. Take care. Bye-bye. Kevin O'Leary, running for the leadership, as you know, of the Conservative Party of Canada. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. ISIS went on a killing spree in Syria on Wednesday. The Assad mob unleashed chemical weapons on civilians on Tuesday. And on uh, Thursday night, the United States attacked the Syrian air base with Tomahawk missiles. Dr. Zudi Jasser is with us on The Roy Green Show, and uh, he spent a lot of time with us over the last 10 years, emigrated uh, to the United States from Syria as a child, former U.S. Navy lieutenant commander, founder of the American Islamic Forum for Democracy, and uh, author of Battle for the Soul of Islam. Dr. Jasser um, blames much of the violence in Syria on U.S. lack of decisiveness. Dr. Jasser, it's been a it's been a, uh, a terrible week in uh, in your former home country, where as a child, with uh, with ISIS on Tuesday, on, uh, on 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 Wednesday, 
and uh, Assad on Tuesday. Uh, which which of the two do you want to address first? Well, I think most importantly, we need to address Assad. And, uh, you know, the thing is, is while we're paying attention to it this week because we finally had American action, it's just another week. Actually, today, as you and I speak, the Assad regime has actually stepped up operations in Idlib and has begun air operations and bombing operations uh, at full course, if not heavier than it's ever been in the last few weeks. We knew Idlib was the next town they were coming to. They warned as the uh, um, activities in Aleppo started to shut down and uh, the, the city had been taken back by the regime after the months and months of horrific genocidal operations there. Uh, they said they were next going to Idlib, and that's what they did. You know, But I think the most important thing about the response from the U.S. government has been that finally he will blink in the future when he does something. And for all those who felt that Syrian policy, whatever that's going to be, from the Trump administration was going to tilt towards Russia and Assad, I think reassuringly many of us in the Syrian-American community are thinking, wow, maybe that's not going to happen. The needle now is tilting away from Russia and Syria. Uh, Assad is using the very same air base, is he not, uh, for the attacks today that was attacked by the Tomahawk missiles? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we sent out 57, 58 uh, missiles, and uh, I heard that uh, it uh, not only uh, got that depot, the chemical weapons depot, but uh, I thought that that uh, air base had been uh, demolished in addition to some other networking uh, connectivity, our arteries, if you will, for Hezbollah, which were was also a victory. Uh, but uh, he seems to have other mechanisms of operating in that town. Homs uh, uh, had become a stronghold for the Syrian regime, and uh, they are using uh, that and surrounding areas to launch operations. The Russians are still helping them. I mean, the story this week that many missed was that the Russians, we believe, were actually helping them load the chemical ordinances. So there were some Russian soldiers, even though the Russian leadership denied it, there were some Russian soldiers involved again in these war crimes, as we've always known with other operations, the use of barrel bombs and other things that all violate international law. Uh, So uh, there's a lot more to come. But at least for the first time, for the first time, a a military moral force of good, which is the American military, uh, did something against the Assad regime for the first time in six years. Zudi, clearly uh, uh, Assad is, is, is trying, to, um, trying to do something, create some dynamic. You know, he's already been attacked by uh, President Trump, probably felt that nothing was going to happen because um, Barack Obama was the ditherer in chief for eight years. But what, could he, what might his motivation be to, uh, to use that very same air base, uh, you know, two days after it's attacked? I think because the signal from the Trump administration is that as long as you don't use chemical weapons, uh, you're not going to see much happen afterwards. Uh, you know, uh, Ambassador Haley got a note from another European uh, ambassador who will remain nameless, I guess, but uh, saying thank you for finally exerting some American leadership in what we've been trying to do against Assad. And, uh, you know, I think at the end of the day, I'm not sure if much is going to change as far as how unleashed the Assad regime is to try to finally uh, uh, end this revolution, which will not end until uh, either he has been destroyed or uh, half, if not more, of the Syrian population, which is already displaced, which uh, half, a, half a million are dead. Uh, this revolution will continue. It, it will not just go away. 
Uh, I think the key is to develop some type of Trump doctrine or strategy that involves, and I've laid out a four-point strategy. Number one, get Iran and, and Russia out of there, which I know is difficult, but that's the only way it'll return it to a civil war. Two is to get Saudi Arabia, Qatar, and Turkey's radicalization of the Sunni part of it uh, out of there. Three is to begin to have some no-fly zones to help uh, humanitarian areas and also help the moderates organize. And then fourth is then you see the Assad regime need to be escorted out and defeated. Yeah. And at the same time, ISIS continues to operate, and I know you had concerns, because they killed a significant number of people, and, and there's no idea who these people are. Oh, exactly. I mean, they will continue to try to, to uh, do the, the most grotesque, barbaric acts to, and in fact, recruit more jihadis. And, you know, I, I folks like Senator Paul and others that said, well, what President Trump did uh, we were not attacked. Uh, they had the bizarre statements that somehow America wasn't attacked, that, uh, that uh, we need to get congressional declaration of war. Listen, if, if you look upon the refugees into Europe as being a threat, ISIS is a threat, all of this will not go away with Assad still in power. So we need, this is all connected. You cannot have an ISIS strategy just to kill ISIS. Assad is the main reason that ISIS exists. These atrocities will continue from both sides of this evil coin in Syria. You still have family there, right? I do. A lot of family in Aleppo, some in Damascus. We hear from them. Uh, uh, Aleppo now, the water has been, the access to water and food has returned. Uh, so uh, some of the humanitarian uh, issues have decreased. It's still horrific. The buildings are, are awash with destruction, and, and uh, it is just uh, abysmal. But it will not solve with the Assad regime there, and ISIS is feeling squeezed in Iraq, finally, as we have a Secretary of Defense that's actually being given leeway. And I'll tell you, for the first time, the reason this operation happened in uh, in Homs is that we have a president that won't reject recommendations from his military. Yeah. And I think that's what happened, is President Trump received a recommendation that inaction in, in Idlib will be uh, more harmful to national and global security right. than action. So. He allowed them to move forward. Zudi, thank you for the time. It's always, uh, always good talking to you. Thank you for coming on and talking to us today. Anytime. Dr. Zudi Thanks. Jasser, bye-bye, the uh, founder of the American Islamic Forum for Democracy and author of Battle for the Soul of Islam. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. Now, let's get to uh, the beauties, at least two of them. Catherine Swift, the most powerful woman in Canada, workingcanadians.ca. How are you? I'm great, thanks, Roy. How's the how's the doggy? Doggy is squeaking away in the background because one of my sons has just arrived, and she loves my kids so much that she just goes hairy when she sees them. So they do squeak, I'm don't they? I'm trying to insulate myself here from sound, so I hope you don't hear it. That's all right. Uh, they they do tend to squeak. Well, yeah, she sort of has this high pitch when she's excited. Ee! You know. Anyway. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, one of my dogs goes out and he chirps. He sounds like I don't know, like a, like a big bird. He chirps. Yeah, you and, can, you can, they can make some funny noises. Yeah, and he gets the other dog all excited because the other dog doesn't know what other animals in the backyard. <laughs> so he's, he hears the here's the first dog chirping. He's looking around for the other animal. He's not yeah, paying attention to his buddy because <laughs> his buddy's not supposed to chirp. His buddy's supposed to bark. <laughs> anyway, Michelle Simpson, former seatmate to the most powerful man in Canada. Well, I don't know if that's true or not. Could be. He's the prime minister. Uh, former Liberal MP, Scarborough West, right? Southwest. Ah! I knew I was close. You're close. These I are writings, close. eh? I was close. Uh, 
And uh, we're waiting for, oh, we have Linda Leatherdale. You finally showed up. Hello, Roy. Where were you? Well, I I don't know. <laughs> Uh-oh. I'm with the lovely Valerie Gibson. Uh-oh. She doesn't know and where I she is. And I was with the lovely John McDermott, one of Canada's treasures, a musician that I think everybody knows, yeah. a singer. Yeah, exactly. Um, unbelievable, but I, I'm sorry if I'm late. You I are. Apologize. You are, but it's okay. Yeah, we, we were just covered everything, Linda. Yeah, we did. Bye. Well, you mean <laughs> now I gotta go? <laughs> gotta go. Nice talking to you. <laughs> All right, let's start with a couple of issues here that uh, that I know we want to get at, and there's quite a few that we need to talk about. So we'll do do them as quickly as 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 is reasonable. Uh, let's have you respond to the week in uh, in Washington. We were expecting James Rosen to be on the air with us in the last uh, half hour the Fox um, senior reporter for Washington, but uh, chief correspondent for Washington. But I imagine he's working. He couldn't join us. We didn't hear from him. I imagine he's working because the Syrians are back to using that air base that the Americans um, attacked in response to the chemical weapons attack on the uh, civilians in Syria. So uh, let's start with that, the American response to what happened in Syria. Michelle, you're, the, uh, you're in the political world, or, yeah, you still are. Um, yeah. What, 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 uh, how do you assess this? In terms of how Trump is looking at it? Well, I, no, just the, well, any way you want to say, whatever you want to oh, say. Oh, okay. Um, I, I think it was a, a, the, the appropriate response. I just questioned, uh, yeah, I questioned, there, there have been three, at least three episodes where, um, Assad gassed his own people. And up until this latest episode, Trump continued to think he was worth propping up. So I guess I asked myself, what changed? Well, are you telling me there were three episodes since last since November? Or there were no since 2013. Well, well, there you have Mr. Obama, who the ditherer in chief who was in charge. And remember in 2013, the Russians gave assurances that all the chemical weapons that Assad had had been destroyed? So did yeah, the U.N. No, exactly, but Trump, Trump continued to kind of prop up Assad. And then it suddenly became, his first response was, what happened last week was an affront. And I thought, whoa, that's a weak response. Well, I thought, Michelle... You know, he, he more or less, and he's on the record in, in numerous instances, Trump is, basically saying, you know, Syria, we're going to leave Syria alone. Like, yeah. you know, I, I don't know that I go as far as to say prop up Assad. I might be wrong, so I, I'm... I'm yeah. well, he said that during the campaign, campaign, didn't he? I think it was more, yep. we're not going to do anything about that. It's up to the Syrian people to, you know, re-elect a new government or, you know, whatever the heck. And and um, and this was a total 180 degree. No, no question what he did. Yeah, but leave. Catherine, I think the chemical fact that it was chemical weapons and you saw these kids die because they said it really seemed to personally affect Donald Trump. That changed the equation, I think. Well, that could well be. Um, and, and I don't, like I say, man, when you think about these horrible situations, there is no right answer. It is complicated. Yeah. It's messy. It's... You know, the notion that you can just go in and have a surgical strike or you can, you know, throw some tomahawks at it or whatever it happens to be. They're super, super complicated, horrid situations, heartbreaking 
when you see little babies, little babies dead on the, you know, on the newspaper yeah. pictures. I mean, yeah. it just breaks your yeah. heart. Well, I think, uh, Linda, what, what, uh, what uh, Assad found out is that there is a red line. It was just a red line that was enforced by the current American president, where the most recent American president kept drawing new red lines. Well, and that's what's so interesting, you know, to have Obama say, red line, we're not going to go in, we're not going to disrupt this. And then, you know, Michelle's right. All we heard from Trump was, we're not going to get involved with Syria, we're not going to get involved, we're just not going to get involved. And then, boom! And i got to tell you, he, Trump is probably one of the most hated men in the world, but because he did this, he is now being overjoyed, and everybody loves him for this strong... Well, I, th- I I don't know what you guys are. Uh, I don't know if I'm if I'm on the same page with, with with you today, but I really think that what Donald Trump did was what he had to do. That was the the right yeah. thing to do. It was the appropriate message to send. And yeah. now Assad has decided to use that airbase again. I think he's going to get hit again. He's going to get yeah. hit a lot harder, and he'll get hit somewhere else. I, I just it's going to happen. Absolutely. I don't disagree you know with you there. Right, I, mean, right. I think I mean, the basic question is, do we in the West, with our relatively right privileged lifestyles and comfort and everything, do we have any responsibility for genocide? That's what's happening in Syria. Assad is killing his own people. Do we have any responsibility or any moral, you know, whatever you want to call it, for that? And I'd like to personally believe we do. I do, too. That, that we oh, yeah, I do, too. Right. You're I on your too. own, guys. And yeah. on that score, I mean, I, I'm not disagreeing with you here, Roy. I, I actually am... Kind of, I won't say, ha- you know, you can't say you're happy to see any of this, but I think some type of response to Assad is absolutely necessary. And, and Obama abdicated to the Russians and, and Iran That's right. in this. He That's right. Remember the, remember the Russian general? anything about. Remember the Russian general walked into uh, the American embassy yeah. and said, we're now going to be putting troops into Syria? Yep. Uh, get used to it and walked out the door. Yep. And, and what what did Obama do? Nothing. Statements that never came to anything. Obama did nothing. Zero. Yeah. But I think but, that but, the, the yeah. thing that befuddles us is though th- this was a big change on Trump's part. And you might be right. The notion of seeing totally innocent people yeah. horribly g- gassing is you know one of the worst ways to go. I'm sure that might have been the trigger. And remember, but, he has some very very experienced military advisors. But is Trump going to change his position as yeah. it, uh, with respect to Syrian refugees? Good question. We See, don't know that. Yeah, we haven't heard anything about that, Roy. No. Well, I mean, and, I, I, you know, I, I, yeah, Michelle, bad, Michelle, they, they unloaded the tomahawks 48 hours ago. Yeah. Right. So why don't yeah. we just wait a couple of days? To see right. what happens next, right? Because he's, Assad is using the base again, so I think they should really just send one up, uh, one of those tomahawks directly at Assad's big mouth. And well, you know, it's a terrible thing to say, but somebody, no, somebody could take out that evil, evil, evil man. Yeah, that wouldn't bother me a bit. No, nope, wouldn't Absolutely bug me either. Me either. Okay, Denny Kader. Denny Kader. Denny Kader. <laughs> Danny Kader had an inflamed prostate and couldn't remember a $25,000 check he received. I'm not accusing the man of a single thing. It's just as another man, as I've pointed out on the air, you cannot tell if you have a prostate inflammation because it has no sensations. Well, the fact that he took a $25,000 check, he's a long-term politician. Come on. And said it doesn't mean anything. Oh, give me a break! What does it say to you, Catherine? Because here's the guy who gets a twenty-five thousand dollars check from a longtime friend, 
and support her. Yeah. And a couple of days later, or a week or two later, he puts $25,000 into the account of his law firm that's covering, uh, that's representing him in the Shane Doan affair. Just those those uh, specific bits and pieces, I, I don't have an issue with it. It's just, it's a friend giving him some assistance. That's yeah. nobody's business. Yeah. But when he but when he says, I can't remember, and then says, well, I, maybe I didn't remember because of an inflamed prostate, that's when my antenna starts to whirl. Well, Denny Kader is a hothead. He is the only MP I have ever almost had a fist fight with. Uh, we were, <laughs> I, I kid you not, we were at a parliamentary committee hearing. He didn't like what we were saying. Um, and and he literally started coming around the table, and I have to confess, wow. I was ready to rock and roll. Down goes Kader. <laughs> down goes Kader. <laughs> well, I probably would have gone down because he's a lot bigger than I am. But that being said, you know, I I know the guy somewhat. He he is a hothead. And yeah. the, the Shane Doan thing alone. Wh- why did he even get into that? You know, I know silly silly thing. But I'm sorry. You know, whatever his lame excuse was, and you're right, the prostate excuse is very lame. You're taking money. You're, you know, I'm sorry. If you're in public office and he's not new to that game, he should know better. Than to take the money well, at all. He, Period. But he yeah. said he said it was a contribution, not a gift, which was why he didn't declare it. Uh, so my well. question is, if it was a contribution to what? Who yeah. actually yeah. His, his cashed that check? <laughs> And I, I would add, too, if that was a conservative, we would see this in headlines right across oh, the media yeah. across the country. Yeah. Absolutely. And you know what? He said it's a contribution, so explain it. And why are you hiding? He's hiding. Yeah. Uh, I'm because still... If it was a contribution to a sitting MP, there are limits that, you know, yeah. it, it's unclear to $500. me. $500. Follow the money trail. And why he got this in 2012, the check, when the Doan case was settled two years prior. I have to take a break, uh, Michelle, but just before okay. we do, just before we do, just in a, in a very rudimentary sense, what's the rule for MPs to receive monetary gifts from friends? Okay, if you get a gift, $500 or more, you have to declare it. Exactly. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. To exactly. the ethics commissioner. Period. End. Yep. End of story. Yep. Yep. Or to your doctor. In this case, yeah, I guess that's uh, the, the fuzzy area. Yeah, you have to report this to your doctor. <laughs> your prostate specialist. Yeah, yeah, I would do that. Urology is what their specialty is. We will. We're going to come back with. I don't know what's happening to today. Let's just hope it doesn't repeat itself tomorrow. Uh, oh, you guys are great. Linda, Catherine, Michelle, the beauties. I'm the Beast. We'll come back in a minute. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. Beauties on the Beast, Catherine Swift, workingcanadians.ca, Linda Leatherdale at Linda Leatherdale, and lindaleatherdale.com, Canada's most respected independent business journalist, and at Michelle Simpson, former Liberal Member of Parliament, former seatmate, seatmate to the Prime Minister of Canada. Did you whip out the... Uh, the uh, the phone with the you know take a lot of pictures, Michelle. <laughs> like selfies with Jeff yeah, yeah, yeah. Did he do a lot uh, of that? Mm, not really. If he was in a room working yeah. a room, yeah, yeah, he used to not so much selfies, 
you know, people were lining up to get pictures. With him. So there was less selfies. And I guess he said no. Oh, right. Yeah, yeah you had to buy a ticket to get in the lineup. <laughs> what about the overheated housing market, beauties? How's the rest of Canada going to uh, deal with this? Um, because it does have an impact on the economy overall. Let's go to The Economist, Ms. Swift. Boy, well, this is a this is a tough one. Uh, it, the, the overheated housing markets are very, very localized, as we know, Toronto and Vancouver. And um, I think the governments have. I have to again, whatever whatever stripe they happen to be. Um, I think they are right to be very, very wary about wading in, because the potential. I mean, look look what the thing that precipitated the big crash in 2008 was the U.S. housing market. The potential for governments to do something stupid <laughs> that crashes something that is most people's nest egg in one way or another, right. you know, and, and and we'll see what happens. Just last week, you know, the federal finance minister Morneau said he talked to he was talking to the Ontario finance minister and, and John Tory in Toronto, and saying we should you know get together and think about what we should do. But be careful, folks, because yep. you know you might find you do a lot more damage than more or less leaving it alone and. Unlike the U.S. situation, which was a, a very policy-induced bubble, which was basically lending money to people who should never have been able to borrow that much money given their financial circumstances, what we have in Toronto in particular is a supply shortage. There's no doubt about it. There is a supply shortage. And you can, you can maybe fiddle around a bit with the foreign buyers. The, you know, they've talked about the properties that are bought and then they're left empty for a, a year or whatever. But, boy, it, it's a very blunt instrument. And if you try to sort of micromanage little bits of the market that I think we'd all agree need some, you know, need something done, you might just do something a lot worse to the entire market. Now, moving away from Toronto, moving down the QEW toward Hamilton and then down toward Niagara, certainly as far as Hamilton and even beyond Hamilton, uh, Linda, as you know, because you live on that track, uh, house prices have gone sky high in the communities surrounding Toronto. Absolutely. And as it moves out. And you know, foreign investors, I mean, come on, I, I called the crash of 1989 to 1990, and then we saw this, and Michael Wilson, then the finance minister, let's hike interest rates, let's burn this down, and we saw a deflationary cycle to 1996. This is different, and we have to understand that, yes, I mean, when I'm sitting here at the lovely home of Valerie Gibson, right two doors away is a house that was bought by who knows who's who sitting vacant. Um, the investors are buying us up. We are cheap in the world stage. We are now a world-class city. And as you're right, Roy, that has pushed out Hamilton, Niagara. Prices are going upwards. Okay. Um, what can we do? I think... Ten seconds. To, ten seconds. We need to get ingenious. We need to... If we want our children to be able to afford a home, we should be helping out parts of Ontario where it's depressed that we can put in white picket fences and okay. our kids don't have to yeah. drive three hours. That's going to help out Ontario. That's going to go over well in Alberta. Thank you, Linda. Thank you, Catherine. <laughs> Thank you, Michelle. <laughs> They've been doing it for exactly decades. Exactly the challenge. <laughs> Toodaloo, kids. Talk to you next weekend. Bye-bye. The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML.